Gospels to Matthew chapter 24. I will start reading in verse 36, but our text uh, is actually verse 42 through verse 51, but I'm going to back up a few verses to remind you of the context. This is the word of the Lord. It has everything that you and I need for life and godliness, uh, and you need to give it your reverent attention because God is speaking to you through it. Listen as I read. Twenty-four thirty-six. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and shall cut him in pieces, and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there, and the gnashing of teeth. Amen. Be seated. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for being a God who wills to reveal yourself to us, your creatures. Uh, You have done so through the creation around us, uh, but you have done so uh, in a salvific way, a saving way, through uh, the scriptures that you have given to us, from which I just read. We rejoice, Lord, that Because of your grace, you willed to save uh, sinners like ourselves by revealing the Savior to us. We thank you that this passage reminds us of our Savior, um, of his first and second coming. 
We pray that as we meditate upon it and and uh, look at it more closely, that you would grant us insight into its meaning, that you, Holy Spirit, would illumine our minds, teach us, uh, encourage us, uh, comfort us, rebuke us if need be, um, but have your way with us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Kids, I want you uh, to uh, imagine a little something happening to you, a a little event happening to you. Now, this isn't real, uh, but let's just use your imaginations. Children are particularly good at imagining things, so you think about this, okay, and and just envision this. Let's say that your dad, uh, before he goes off to work in the morning, I'm going to assume your dad goes off to work in the morning, uh, before he goes off to work in the morning, your dad says to you, and says your name, and then says, just before he leaves, he says, I've got a really neat thing that we're going to do when I return. And you're going to just, you're going to love it. It's going to be wonderful. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I am going to come and... Um, you need to be ready when I come, because I'm going to come, um, and we're going to leave immediately after I come and pick you up. It's important. The timing of this is important. So you need to be all ready for me to come. And I'm not sure when that's going to be today, but it's going to be sometime today. Okay, so you, we got that? And your dad says that to you, and you go, oh, okay, this, is, this sounds like really a really neat thing. Dad has promised it's going to be really fun. I'm going to, have a, I'm going to be very excited about what happens. So he tells you that, kisses you goodbye, and he goes off to work. But you think to yourself, during the day, or in in the morning at least, you think to yourself, now, Dad normally doesn't come home from work until 5 o'clock, or whatever it is your dad normally comes home from, 6 o'clock, maybe 7 o'clock, Trey. Um, But he, he, he normally comes home late in the day. So... I'm pretty sure that's when he's going to come today for that special surprise that he's, going to, that he's going to give me. And so because of that, you kind of relax. You kind of go, well, you know, I'll, I'll get ready when the, when, when the time comes. And so for whatever reason, let's just say you were out uh, playing in the mud because it had just rained outside and you got muddy and let's say it was in the middle of the day. Let's say it was right around lunchtime, just before lunch, let's say. And so your mom said, you need, to, you need to clean up. Go take a shower or go take a bath. And so you go and you start taking a bath and got the waters all full and you're sitting in the bathtub and dad shows up. And you're in the bathtub. You don't have your clothes on, you're not dry, you're not at the front door, you're in the bathtub. And your dad says, I'm sorry, you missed it. You had to be ready when I came in order for you to experience the blessing of this surprise. And he leaves again. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing? Wouldn't that be terrible to miss out on the blessing that your dad said you'd get if you had been ready for him when he picked you up? It's a very, very sad thing, wouldn't it? Well, you know what? 
when Jesus, when Jesus returns um, a second time, and you know the Bible says he's going to return a second time, when he returns a second time, it's going to be a great blessing to those of us who are ready for his return. We're going to go to heaven. That's what's going to happen. If he returns before we, before we, uh, before we die. Uh, but we've got to be ready. And if we aren't ready for Jesus' return, it's going to be much more tragic than that little story I told you where you, where, where you weren't ready for your dad's wonderful surprise uh, when he came home to pick you up and take you to a place to, that was wonderful. It's going to be much worse. This passage is about the second coming of Christ, as, of course, the next several passages that we're going to look at um, in the coming weeks uh, will be. In fact, uh, the second coming of Christ was spoken of in the uh, earlier, earlier in this uh, chapter, uh, chapter 24, and I'll refer back to that a uh, uh, little bit in a moment here. But we need to be ready, folks. We need to be alert, is how the New American Standard translates it. Be prepared, is how some other translators uh, render the, uh, the Greek. But we need to be prepared. And there are two points uh, that we're going to cover in the, the remainder of this sermon. First, we're going to look at lessons to be learned about Christ's return from the parable of the homeowner and the thief. And then we're going to look at lessons to be learned about Christ's return from the parable of the faithful and sensible servant. First, we're going to look at the, in verses 42 to 44, the parable of, uh, by the way, these, I use the word parable here. I'm going to use that because it's the one that kind of rolls off my tongue. But these are in some sense not exactly parables, they're illustrations but if you if you broaden the meaning of the word parable, we can use that word. But these are this is not your typical parable, is what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, it has some differences from a, a, one of the parables that Jesus normally uh, uh, normally gave. Uh, but we're going to call them a parable or an illustration. I'll use both terms as we go through, so just uh, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Uh, I trust. But uh, we want to look first at this first parable or first illustration of the homeowner. Um, whose home is broken into by the thief. I'll reread it, verses 42. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you be ready too. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not think you will. With this parable that I just read to you there in those three verses, Jesus is continuing to hammer home a lesson that he taught in the preceding two comparisons that he made. That's another word I'm also going to use, comparisons. Uh, comparisons that he made in the last section that we looked at, which I read for you a few moments ago, uh, starting in verses 36 through 41. Um, in verses 36 through 39, there he compared the moments just prior to the opening up of the floodgates of heaven and the releasing of the fountains of the deep in Noah's day. He compares 
that time to the moments just before his second coming in glory at the end of the age. Um, and that comparison uh, of the what it was like just before uh, all hell broke loose in the form of water, uh, just before that moment, that uh, comparison with Noah's day stressed the suddenness of the second coming and stressed the unpredictability of the coming of Christ in glory, bodily coming of Christ in glory. And as did the second illustration that immediately followed that, which is found in verses 40 and 41, with uh, talking about the two men working in the field and the two women grinding at the mill. The point there was likewise suddenness <coughs> of what's happening and the unpredictability of what was happening and with respect to the second coming. So, Given the suddenness and the unknown timing, uh, that is the unpredictability of Christ's return uh, to earth, believers need to be constantly ready for the possible return of our Savior, bodily return of our Savior at the end of the age. Now, the first point, may, this, this is, by the way, the first point made by the parable that we are now looking at uh, now, starting in verse 42 that I just read for you, 42 through 44. Uh, that's the first point. You and I need to be ready. And by the way, this is a recurring theme in this chapter uh, uh, and the next. Uh, the need for readiness, preparedness, alertness. Uh, and he makes that point in this parable, in verses uh, 42 through 44. Now, I'm going to wait until the second point of my sermon to explain what being ready means, what it entails. Okay, uh, and the reason I'm going to do that um, is that uh, I'm going to do that is because the text itself addresses the reason believers need to be constantly ready for the possibility of Christ's return, it discusses that before it discusses the specifics of what it means to be ready for his return. So I'm going to follow the scriptural order here is what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, we're going to talk first about the reason uh, for the need to be ready and then what it means to be ready. So the reason we need to be ready uh, for the possible return of Christ is is one of the others, the second point of the parable of the homeowner and the thief, and that is this. So first is be ready. And the second is Jesus can come at any time. Jesus can come at any time. And when he does come, he is going to catch some, probably many, even in the church, off guard when he arrives. Now, those of you who remember and were here for the sermon when I interpreted verse 20, uh, 14 of chapter 24, this chapter, those of you who were there when I was talking about verse 14, may be thinking to yourself right now, because I just said Jesus can come at any time, you may be thinking, thinking to yourself, now wait a minute, Jesus can't return to earth until the gospel has been preached to all the nations. That's what verse 14 essentially says. I'll read it for you. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. In other words, after that has happened. And the gospel, you're thinking still here, the gospel hasn't been preached to all the nations. 
So, can't we safely assume that Jesus won't be returning to earth any time in the immediate future? Can't we assume that? The answer is no, you can't safely assume that. I'm going to tell you why. Um, first, it's mainly uh, two reasons, uh, although there is a third one. Uh, uh, no, actually, I'm going to stick with two. Two reasons why you can't assume that Jesus is going to tarry, to use an old-fashioned term. First is this. No one knows exactly what constitutes the fulfillment of the prophecy recorded in verse 14 that I just read for you. Now, when I was preaching on verse 14 a few weeks back, I pointed out that there are still thousands of language groups that haven't had the Bible translated into their language yet. And I did use that fact that there are thousands that haven't been translated, uh, uh, languages that haven't had the Bible translated in. I use that fact to suggest that Christ probably won't be returning right away. But, maybe, I mean maybe, maybe the preaching of the gospel to all the nations, in God's mind, the way God interprets that, understanding of that, of verse 14, maybe the preaching of the gospel in all the nations in God's mind means something less thorough, shall we say, than having the gospel disseminated to every language group in the world in their own tongue. Maybe it means something less than that. If that's the case, if it means something less than every language group has a Bible in its language and has uh, some opportunity to read that Bible and the, read the gospel, if it's something less than that, the Bible that the Bible doesn't have to be translated into every known language in order for the prophecy in verse fourteen to be fulfilled. Maybe that's the case. If that, uh, and the fact is, by the way, folks, the gospel, the Christian gospel, has already penetrated every political nation, including uh, some of the most uh, uh, closed countries of the world, like North Korea and, and uh, some of the Muslim countries. The Christian gospel has already penetrated every political nation in the world, to some degree. Some a lot more than others, but still to some degree. And if this state of affairs of the gospel having penetrated every political nation in the world constitutes the preaching of the gospel to all the nations, and it could, then Jesus can come today. Verse 14 has already been fulfilled, is my point. If, if, and I'm, big if, if that's what God meant by what Jesus said there in verse 14. That the that uh, the current situation. That's one reason why you can't assume that Jesus isn't going to come any time. Automatically assume that he isn't going to come any time in the in the near future. A second reason is this: there is also a possibility um, that Jesus' prophecy in verse fourteen was actually fulfilled in the first century, as far as God is concerned. You might go, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. Paul, in a couple of places, I'm just going to read one of them for you, but in Colossians, well, I'll, I'll just read it from my notes here. In Colossians chapter 1, go look at it afterwards, not now. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. There in that verse, Colossians 1, 23, Paul speaks of the gospel having been, past tense, proclaimed in all creation under heaven. 
And he means at the time when he was writing, penning the letter to the Colossians, which was around 60 AD, he said the gospel had been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Marcellus Kick thinks that's a fulfillment of verse 14. Some others do as well. If the extent of Christianity's reach in 60 AD, when Paul wrote the Colossians, uh, wrote to the Colossians, if the extent of Christianity's reach in 60 AD qualified in God's mind as a fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in verse 14, which was spoken in 30 AD, by the way, 30 years prior, then Christ could have come any time in the past 1900 plus years. You see my point? Now I'm not I'm not sold on either of those points, but they're both they're both plausible. And finally, here is a third point as to why uh, we should be alert and uh, for Jesus coming is there is a sense in which Jesus comes in judgment to every human being at the time of his or her departure from this world. He comes for you, if you will. Now, that's not the bodily return that the second coming is, that this passage is primarily teaching of, but I think it's an implied point that is of application of it to the individual Christian's life. Jesus is going to come for you and me, unless he returns before we take our last breath. Um, And you need to be ready. I need to be ready and on the alert and prepared. In the same way that the saints who are alive when Jesus returns bodily to earth need to be ready and will be ready if they're saints. So, there are several, at least three reasons why you should live as if there is a real possibility that Jesus could come for you at any time, bodily or spiritually. Those who are not ready when Jesus returns will be caught off guard and suffer great loss as a consequence of having been ill-prepared. The man in the parable whose house was broken into presumably lost things that were of great worth to him when the thief broke in. His possessions. The person who was unprepared at the time of Jesus' second coming will lose likewise something of exceedingly great worth to him or her, and that is his or her soul. And body, too, excuse me. Soul and body. If you're not prepared, if you're not ready, when Jesus comes, you will go to hell. Leads me to the second point of the sermon. So we've seen lessons to be learned about Christ's return from the parable of the homeowner and the thief. Now let's look at the lessons to be learned about Christ's return from the parable of the, uh, I'll call him the uh, uh, the head servant. I'm going to call him that, or the servant in charge. That's probably uh, the way I'm going to uh, change my notes here, what I, what I wrote down the first time. The servant in charge. Okay, now notice something before we get into the parable itself and the details of it. Notice something. Um, 
in verse uh, 45, it starts out in most translations, who then? There's the word then in there. It's ara in the Greek. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? The word then, folks, indicates that an inference in verse 45 is now being drawn from the preceding material, specifically the preceding verse, which which commands readiness in light of the fact that Jesus, uh, Jesus, the timing of Jesus' timing is unknown and will be unexpected. Then is connecting what he says in verse 45 with what he said just a moment ago when he says, for this reason you too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Be ready. He says, who then? So, uh, so he's drawing an inference from the be ready, is what, uh, what I, what I um, think is going on here. Um, and what that means is the parable of the of, that we're now looking at, starting in verse 45 of the, uh, of the head servant, I'll call him, um, that we are learning in this parable, uh, that we're now about to look at, we're learning what it means to be ready. That was cited in the, mentioned in the previous verse. Okay? Be ready, verse 44, then, by inference, let's talk about that. This, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Uh, and that, that the talking about being ready and the content of being ready is now, uh, is now we're going to be uh, given some light as to what that means. N- not, not exhaustively, but, but, but really in this, in this uh, remaining parable 45 through 51. So, let's talk about the details of the parable for a few moments. So, a master <clears throat> of a number of servants, so it's a, it's a fairly well-to-do man, he has a number of servants, slaves, uh, in his household, uh, and this master is about to leave his house, his home, on a journey. He's going somewhere, he's going off, he's leaving. Um, for an indeterminate amount of time. And before he leaves, he places his most trusted servant in charge of all the other servants in the household and what takes place in the household in his absence. The parable indicates, it's implied, but it's there, indicates that this newly appointed household manager, we'll call him, uh, has not only been given the opportunity, the responsibility of supervising the work done by all the other servants in the household, but he has also been given the responsibility of providing for those servants uh, what they need so that they can do their work. So they have sufficient energy, so they have the resources, what have you. And so that's implied in what is stated here. And the duties that this um, head servant, this servant in charge, uh, uh, has been uh, assigned by his master who has just gone away, uh, they are the, those are his duties. You supervise the work that's done in my absence, and you care for those who are doing the work, and make sure they get what they need, and are done right by, if you will. Now, in this parable, um, Jesus uses this servant who is in charge, this head servant, uh, while his master is away, he uses that 
figure to depict both the proper behavior of one who is waiting for his master's return and improper behavior for one who is waiting for his master's return. He used the same servant and says if he, you know, he can do this or he can do this. This is what makes it a little bit unorthodox in the way of a parable, but uh, anyway. And again, uh, so so he so it is the proper behavior of the servant when the if the servant acts properly, it's the proper behavior that must and will be imitated by we as Christians who are waiting for our master's return. That's how the parable applies to us. And again, uh, the behavior that we're about to look at more closely constitutes what it means to be ready or be prepared or be alert. The improper behavior of the head servant will characterize the response of the ungodly to Jesus' absence during or prior to his second coming. The improper behavior of the head servant will characterize the response of the ungodly to Jesus' absence, but just prior to his return. So, you and I are to be constantly ready for Jesus' return. And what that means is this, as as spoken by this parable, implied by this parable. Jesus, uh, we are to emulate the servant in the parable when he behaves rightly in his master's absence. Jesus describes the servant in charge who does what is right with two words. The first word is, we're going to look at them in reverse that they're found in the text. The first word that I'm going to look at is, he is sensible. That's how the New American Standard translates the word. He is a sensible servant, a sensible uh, manager of the house. That is to say, he is wise. He is prudent. He is careful. He is very mindful of his, and what that means, fleshed out a little bit more uh, by implication, is he is very mindful of the responsibilities that he has been given by his master. And that's, so uh, in, in that sense, he is, uh, he is sensible. He is wise. He is mindful of what his duties are. And Christ, of course, requires you to be similarly aware of what your duties are as a as a child of his, as a believer. You and I have duties, also known as commands, instructions, however you want to term it, but laws. Uh, he has given us things to do, um, <clears throat> which, he, which we find in the Holy Scriptures. This is how you are to live in light of what uh, the salva- salvation that I have wrought in your life. In, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> In light of the mercy I've shown you, here is how I would have you live for me. And that comes to us from the scriptures. So here's my question to you before we go any further about what it means to be sensible. Are you in the scriptures? Are you regularly, indeed daily, in the scriptures, exposing yourself to what God, what Christ uh, has said to you and continues to say to you in the scriptures. Are you studying the word of God? Are you meditating upon it? Trying to think about how does how can I apply this passage that tells me to be careful about how I speak or what have you. Uh, to be careful about my thought life. You see, 
being a sensible slave or servant requires that you be <clears throat> aware of your responsibilities, first of all, right? <clears throat> you have to be aware of your responsibilities. The head servant <clears throat> exhibits wisdom and prudence, not only in his being aware of what his responsibilities of, uh, are, but he's continually mindful of the fact, again implied in the text, that his master could return at any moment. That's going. That's regularly something he's reminding himself of. That's part of the wisdom. That's part of the prudence. He's not only aware of his responsibilities while his master's away, but he's mindful that his master could return at any moment. That's, uh, again, applied implied by the text. So, again, another moment of application here. Christ expects you and me, to have the same mindset with respect to his return. We are to be constantly mindful of the fact that he could return at any moment. Do you live each day mindful of this? I don't. Every day. Think about that. I need work in that area. Maybe you do too. We need to think that way. We need to keep that thought kicking around in our heads as in order to be sensible servants. That's what a sensible servant of Christ does, like the servant in the parable here um, <clears throat> that we're looking at. Second, the second adjective that Jesus used to describe the servant who is acting properly is, he says, this servant is Faithful. The manner in which this servant performs his duties, in other words, inspires trust in others, specifically in his master, because he is represented to his master that he's going to take care of things properly. That's, again, implied, but it is implied that he has represented himself that way. Um, and uh, he is... He will, he will faithfully discharge his duties, is what is uh, implied by his accepting those responsibilities uh, from his master. And to be faithful is to inspire trust. To inspire trust. It means to be dependable. In the case of the servant in charge, dependable uh, in the discharge of his duties, which his master has given him prior to prior to his leaving. To be faithful, uh, to be dependable, uh, to be trustworthy in the discharge of those duties. Again, your master, my master, has given us a list of responsibilities he expects us to be about the business of fulfilling while he is away. Found in the scriptures, again. Those responsibilities that we are to fulfill are not designed to earn our way into heaven, although we won't get to heaven without good works. But they don't—they uh, are not what get us into heaven. They are—they uh, are—they are consequent to our justification. Uh, so they don't earn our way into heaven, but they are—they uh, are to be um, uh, as a a consequence of the fact that we have been loved, we have experienced the love uh, of God, um, and we are to love him in return in this way. Uh, and we will, if we're truly believers. We will uh, live um, 
and strive to live as becomes the followers of Christ. So, so let me ask you again, how diligently, how faithfully are you discharging your duties as found in the scriptures? Just as a representative sampling here of uh, there are positive duties and there are negative duties. There, in other words, there are do's and there are don'ts, right? Um, and they're both legitimate. Again, they're not, don't have anything to do with um, earning God's pardon of us. Uh, Jesus alone does that. But they are things that we are to, and will do imperfectly, but do as Christians. Not grumbling. is We are not to grumble or complain. That is not to characterize the Christian. We are not to be fearful as a habit. We are not to think ill of others without proof, if I can put it that way, that's uh, that's undeniable. And even then, we are to be charitable, even with those, uh, cover the sins of uh, those uh, who may be sinning, are sinning. Um. We are not to lust in our hearts after not just sexual lust, but all kinds of inordinate desires uh, for safety, for recognition, for money, for, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We are not to do that. Faithful servants don't covet, whether it be our neighbor's wife or our neighbor's house. We're not to be selfish. We're not to be self-absorbed. We're not to make the world all about us and think that everybody has to act the way we want them to act. We're not to do those things, folks. And there are things we are supposed to do. There are do's. We are to be humble. We are not to be Inordinate lovers of self. We already, we're going to love ourselves by definition. But we're not to be inordinate lovers of self. We are to be humble. We are to be a praying person. We are to be a trusting person. Trusting the Lord actively in situations, even small things, duties that we have. And the grace to do those duties the way, in a God-honoring way. We are to be attending church regularly. Weekly. And we are to be Sabbath keepers. And these are just a representative sampling, of course. These are amongst some of the duties that we as forgiven people have to our God who has forgiven us. And we are to be motivated to be faithful by the knowledge, our knowledge, that our Master could come for us at any moment, as the text clearly implies. Actually, it explicitly states that we are to do that. We are to be motivated by the knowledge that he could return at any moment. So, we are to emulate uh, the servant uh, if he is faithful and sensible. That's what we're to be as Christians. And only then are we ready for Jesus to return for us, either bodily or spiritually, when we take our last breath. That, that faithfulness, that 
that uh, sensibility won't be perfect. But it will be there if you're a Christian. And if it's not, you're not a Christian. And you need to repent of your sins and your waywardness and you need to flee to Jesus Christ as your only hope of being forgiven of those sins which have so offended God and which make you and me, all of us, worthy of hell for eternity. We're to emulate the servant who's sensible and faithful. We are not to emulate the servant's manifestations as described in this passage of unfaithfulness. Uh, he, he turns it around again. It's the same individual, but he says, but if, verse 48, but if the evil slave, you know, he now makes him evil, but if the evil slave says in his heart, and then he goes on. So what are some things that we are not to emulate uh, in this uh, in, in this slave, if he's evil. Three things that are uh, alluded to in this passage, but of course it's not an exhaustive list. First is carelessness. Carelessness. Particularly carelessness of the way one thinks that manifests itself in the way one speaks. The head servant, uh, who was put by his master in charge of all the other servants, thought irresponsible and wicked Thoughts, which came out of his mouth, at least to himself in private, if not before others. He said, effectively, uh, paraphrasing here, a long, long time is going to elapse before my master returns. I know that. So I'm going to refrain from doing what he has told me to do and do what I feel like doing, even if what I do would offend and anger him if he were here. But I want to do it. Stupid. Evil. Irresponsible. Foolish. Folks who are unfaithful and therefore unprepared for Christ's return think similar thoughts about Jesus that the evil servant did about his master. He's not going to return anytime soon, if ever. We're good. I can get away with this. So. The unfaithful servants are irresponsible and foolish in their thinking. Another uh, manifestation of unfaithfulness, uh, ill-preparedness, unconverted state, is cruelty in this text. The master is, uh, excuse me, not the master, but the the servant in charge is cruel. We read there in verse uh, 49, and he shall begin to beat his fellow slaves. Being cruel, folks, is uh, being cruel to others is common practice among unbelievers. Common practice. All you have to do is turn the news on, and you see it uh, every day. The thing, the horrible things that people do to one another. Parents who abuse their children uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, hu- uh, spouses. I was going to say husbands, but nowadays, spouses who abuse their spouses. Um, emotionally, uh, 
physically or spiritually. Verbal cruelty is rampant on social media, for those of you that are still on it. It's rampant. People say things that are cutting, that are demeaning, that are hurtful, that are designed to hurt and cut other people to the quick, to, to make them feel uh, emotionally pained. You hear the things that spill out of our politicians' lips. You probably encounter it as you go out in your weeks and listen to colleagues talk to each other, maybe talk to you. The godless are cruel. The unfaithful are cruel. And finally, the third uh, way in which this... uh, uh, the slave, when he chooses to be evil, uh, manifests that evil is he uh, eats and drinks with the drunkards. He deliberately, or he dedicates himself, in other words, to the indulgence of his fleshly appetites. This is kind of a problem today, too, wouldn't you say? Obesity is at an epidemic levels in our country. Sexual promiscuity everywhere. Drug use. Alcohol abuse. The the need to be entertained at all times by a device. Entertain me. It's our, it's our world, folks. And all too much of the world is in the church. Unfaithful. And the interesting thing is, I think this is particularly for churchgoers who are tares. Otherwise, they wouldn't be, I don't think Jesus would have used, although you can't, you got to be careful with parables when you interpret them, but I suspect that he wouldn't have used the imagery of a servant and an evil servant of the master if there wasn't some, you know, um, import uh, to that. And I suspect it has to do with the fact that uh, unbelievers who are in the church and who say they belong to Jesus and are serving Jesus but aren't, that, that he has those folks in mind who aren't being faithful or sensible servants of his, but are in some sense still servants. Well, let's, in closing, look at the consequences of being found unready and unfaithful when Jesus returns. We see these in verses 50 to 51. He says those who are unfaithful and unwise uh, are, <clears throat> are going to be cut to pieces. Cut to pieces. In ancient times, it was not uncommon. In fact, it was common, uh, from what I read, uh, for slaves who disappointed their masters in a, in a significant way to suffer this gruesome fate of being cut to pieces. They would literally cut their servants to pieces. Imagine. Can't even imagine. But Jesus is making an allusion here to the horrific consequences of being found unprepared, unfaithful, when Jesus comes for us. Whether, again, in body or spiritually. 
He says they'll be cut to pieces. He says the wise, the unwise, the unfaithful servant will be assigned to a place, uh, a, a place with the hypocrites. Hypocrites. How does, where does, how does hypocrites uh, come into play here? Why, why does Jesus use that language? Well, the servant in charge was a hypocrite in that he had accepted and then betrayed the confidence that his master had placed in him. Again, implied in the parable. He'd accepted and then betrayed the confidence that his master had placed in him. Mere professing Christians, and I say mere professing Christians, are hypocrites in that they claim to serve Christ but are betraying him by their actions. I hope there's not one or more than one here in this room. I hope there are none in this room. But mere professing Christians are described by, in Titus, chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, where we read, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Hypocrites will be assigned to this place as well. And when Jesus comes for those hypocrites, he will consign them to the place where hypocrites go, which is the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This language is denoting the inconsolable grief and hopelessness that will be hell's existence. And he is also denoting by the gnashing of teeth the excruciating pain and the frenzied anger that will be felt by those who are in hell, experiencing the, the unmitigated wrath of God. Is that where you're headed? If it is, if you're rather not faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully and more or less wisely striving to serve Jesus by striving to obey him in every area of your life, as he describes in in, in his word what those areas are, then you're headed to that place the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity. You don't want to go there. That is way, way too high a price to be your own God for a few years here on earth. So if you're listening to me remotely, or if there's anybody here, man, woman, or child, who's never fled to Jesus, acknowledged what a wretch you are, how much you are worthy of God's judgment, um, and knowing that you can't do a a thing to save yourself, that your only hope is trusting in Jesus to save you from God's wrath, you need to do that. Um, You need to take my advice, and you need to do that. Otherwise, this is your fate. 
But the fate of the faithful and sensible slave is indescribable wonder and glory and bliss and joy forevermore for the one who belongs to Christ, but only for the one who belongs to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage that reminds us of our desperate need of Christ. Lord, if there is anyone listening who is has been defying you, Lord Jesus, and kept you at arm's length, which is to say, doesn't belong to you, would you please have mercy on the person who is um, a false professor of service to you? Would you please, for those of us, Lord, who are genuinely your children, who have fled to you, Lord Jesus, uh, for forgiveness and for right standing before uh, the Father, Lord, we struggle to be faithful. We struggle to be sensible and wise. The old man within us wants nothing of either of those virtues. And Lord, it's hard. It's hard to fight the fight. And it is a fight against what remains of indwelling sin uh, and then the temptations that pummel us from the world and from the devil. And we fall a lot. We struggle to, to even uh, be halfway faithful uh, much of the time and to be wise. Would you please help us in this struggle? Would you please grant us greater wisdom, greater uh, faithfulness, greater trustworthiness? Only you can, can grow those virtues in us, would you please do that, that we might increasingly honor you um, and increasingly act like this faithful and sensible servant of whom you have spoken. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.